You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For episode two of the Leafs rewatch on Live, Laugh, Leafs, we're traveling even further back in time, Mike. 18 years, in fact, to game two of the Eastern Conference semifinal between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Ottawa Senators, the Battle of Ontario, an extended Battle of Ontario, and one that ended with Gary Roberts, maybe one of Gary Roberts' most memorable moments in his career with the Maple Leafs. Mike, I promise to choose a shorter game, or at least one that Sportsnet chooses for our next rewatch. Yeah, this was, um, you don't really realize that you're going to be watching uh, two full hockey games, essentially, yeah. in one sitting with the, uh, with the triple overtime. But what a, just what a game. Like this was, this was, I know that we talked about the 2006 was like when we watched uh, Sundin's uh, 500th goal game. That was like a real blast from the past. There was a lot of, you know, glory moments from the Leafs or like a lot of sort of mimicry of the glory years of the Leafs. These were the glory years. Like this was like the, this is the OG crew, the Robert Reichels, the, you know, the Carol Pilash, the guys like that. It was, it was awesome. And we're talking about random names like we did last time, this is going to be a fun random name game. To play. There's, there's definitely some random names there. I will set the scene as I did last time. Uh, just this to, is a, just this is a lot of, of scene to set to this game. Yeah, yeah I got, I got a, quite a few notes. So I'll try and get through it pretty quickly, but we'll touch on all these things, obviously, uh, during the podcast. But uh, May 4th, 2002, the Leafs are down one nothing in the series. Uh, they were shut out in game one. And as you mentioned, the glory years, we are fully entrenched in the Pat Quinn era, which were the glory years. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the most successful eras in Leaf history, certainly the most successful of our lifetime. Uh, The back in the conference semis, as I mentioned, for the fourth time in as many seasons, just beat the New York Islanders in seven games. The Leafs had beaten the Senators in the previous two postseasons as well. So as as much as this was, you know, fully entrenched in the Pat Quinn, we're fully entrenched in the Battle of of, uh, Ontario era as well. Uh, they beat him in six games the year before, or two years before, and it was a clean sweep the year the year previous. Uh, and that was the the most dominant Senators team of that era too. Was the team that they swept they swept. So uh, maybe a little bit of a rebuilding here for the Senators, sort of just putting the pieces back together uh, after what was a tremendous disappointment for them. Uh, the Leafs haven't quite reached the buy up the remaining seasons of aging superstars phase, but they're definitely still flexing their financial muscle. They just signed future Hall of Famer, in my eyes at least, Alexander McGillney to a four-year $22 million contract. Uh, They're already paying guys like Sundin, Tucker, Roberts, Reichel, Renberg, uh, Shane Corson, McCabe, Coverley. So quite a bit bit of money tied up uh, with the Leafs right now. Uh, And they also had Curtis Joseph at this time. Uh, This was actually one of his last games with the Leafs because he would sign with the Red Wings. I think there was a bit of a spat uh, with him and Pat Quinn, but uh, it ended ended an incredible four-year run for him. 
the Red Wings actually went on to win the Stanley Cup over the Hurricanes, and the Leafs lost to the Hurricanes uh, in the Stanley Cup final. Of course, uh, Curtis Joseph would go to Detroit, wouldn't be as successful there. Uh, but quickly on the Senators, uh, worst regular season actually for them in the eight or nine year run where they were really, really good in the Daniel Alfredson era. Uh, they finished third in the division, but uh, they managed to beat the Philadelphia Flyers in seven, uh, was it in seven games in round one? No, it was a, was a sweep. I might have a, it was pretty quick because Laleem got, Laleem's numbers were ridiculous. So it must've been yeah. early. Uh, set up a rematch with the Leafs. Uh, the Senators had just fleeced Mike Milbury, trading Yashin for Zdeno Char and the pick that would become Jason Spezza. Some really good players on this Spezza, on this Senators team. You know, Hosa, Redden, Havlat, Fisher. Patrick Laleem was coming, was in net, and this was his apex mountain, to quote you and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the ringer. Uh, he came off that brilliant season, series versus the Flyers. His numbers in the postseason were just ridiculous coming into this game against the Leafs. Yeah, this was, uh, you were talking about all the money that the Leafs were spending. Um, a lot of that was on the IR at the time, or at least uh, at least on the bench. True. Because this was a game, I mean, right off the hop, I, I, remember, I remember very clearly watching this game. So I, used to, I was seven when this game was played, seven years old. I still and don't get how you remember things that clearly at seven, but. Trust me, like Leafs games stood out to me. And I was, so I was seven watching this game as a kid, and I used to only be allowed to watch the first period of Hockey Night Canada games because they went so late. So what I would do, I, I watched the first period and I'd go up and I knew my dad would fall asleep in, like, you know, in front of the TV watching the rest of it. So when he fell asleep, I'd creep back down, watch the rest of the game, went back up, no one would know. There you, you know, go. S- sneaky Mike. And so this game, I would, uh, I, I, you know, watch the first period, at least up 2 nothing. It was great. Then I waited until like the third period, or uh, yeah, the third period so my dad fell asleep, went back down, came back down to a, a game that was tied you know, to my horror and watched a bit. And because the game went so late, my dad then woke up again and kicked me up and kicked me out back up to bed. So I remember waking him up at five in the morning the next day. And he, he told me it was five. It could have been even earlier. I don't know. But five in the morning the next day. Probably, it was probably later. He probably exaggerated. And I went, hey, dad, you know, who, who won? He's like, ah, the Leafs. I'm like, who scored? Like, Roberts. I'm like, yeah. And like, as a little kid, I was like bouncing off the walls at like five in the morning on a Sunday morning after this because I found out that Roberts, like th- that Roberts scored. This was a game that like watching it back, I remember things from it and it like really meant a lot to me as a kid. Like this was, this was just like, when you think of the Battle of Ontario, like that game is what you think of. Now I had no recollection of this game. I'm going to be honest with you. Absolutely no recollection. Did not remember the goal. Even when I watched it, I didn't remember the goal. But uh, I was talking to my buddies, I guess it was, yeah, it was on Saturday night on Sportsnet, so I was talking to them. And apparently we all watched in the same house together. We were, I was 13, I believe, at the time. So we were watching the game pretty, you know what, pretty uh, young of age to be hanging out with buddies alone in the basement. I can't, maybe not, I don't know. But no, we, were up pretty, fine. we were up pretty late, 13 years old, a bunch of boys in the, in the basement. Apparently we went out in the streets and we celebrated the, uh, the overtime winner. So we were not only up late, but we also blew a curfew, I guess, because we went outside and we were trying to get people to honk their horns. Uh, and my buddies had, you know, vivid memories of this. I have none. And that goal, unfortunately, did not actually bring back those memories. I was a little disappointed when I watched it. I was like, no, nope, I don't remember that. The goal itself is, like, really weak. Like, it was, like, well, we're obviously going to get into this stuff. But, like, it, it like, when you, when you think back to it, you think it's this, you know, Herculean effort by Gary Roberts to, you know, shoulder the team through the Sundin's absence and, 
you know, and, and score this goal. It was like a weak shot off the, off the draw that was just through a screen. And it was Robert's first shot of the game into third OT. It is somewhat uh, fitting, though, that the guy who would sort of change the way NHLers look at fitness would score the goal 104 minutes into yeah. a game. I'll give him oh, that. Dude, the, the, the exhaustion was so apparent. There was a point in this, in the end, near the end of the second OT where Carol, Carol Pilash, who played way too much in this game, by the way. We'll, we'll get into that. Like, he was great, man. He was great. Was, I, was, I had in my notes, was he their best right-hand defenseman? I think so. <laughs> but he, like, he, he literally like, he fell down in a, in a battle in the corner and just stayed down, like just laid there. Like he wasn't hurt. He, wasn't, like, he didn't take a slash in the knee or something. He just was like, I'm so tired. I literally can't get up. They were so tired, both teams, that they were not raising the puck in the second and third overtime. And they were lucky that Patrick Laleem let the five-hole wide open because that puck didn't get off the ice for Gary Roberts. And a lot of the good scoring chances, there were good scoring chances in the start of the third overtime. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, it, kinda, it was like a sort of a rush just to see like the change from the second overtime, which was really, really tough to watch. But the players in that second overtime, they could not lift the puck off the ice. It was like it was never going to happen. When he, we knew it was going to happen in the third overtime coming in, but uh, just in that second overtime, not surprised that it didn't happen because those, both those teams just didn't seem to have anything left. This, was, this will always be forgotten as the Darcy Tucker game. Darcy Tucker played so well in this game. We talked about him last time, about how he was, you know, he, he was crazy, a madman. But this, he could have ended this game in OT like five different times. Specifically on the, on the, I think it was the end of the second OT or start of the third where he hit the post right in the slot. Like he would, this was a game, like this will be remembered as Roberts game. Darcy Tucker is the guy who stepped up for the Leafs here. He was incredible. What I certainly forgot about Tucker was the way he could shoot the puck. He had a good oh, shot. Yeah. I did, I would have never like, you know, in the last, you know, he's been retired for over a decade. I'm sure now, maybe not quite a, maybe not quite a decade, but around then. And the times that I've thought about him, I haven't once considered how good his shot used to be. But he was letting it rip in this game. Uh, Everyone and, was. And I think he got, I think he got two posts. Uh, but, and obviously he scored one of the goals with a nice shot. I, I didn't really consider the fact that he was one of the elite shooters on, the, on this, those Leaf teams. They didn't have many shooters, let's be honest. But he was definitely one of them. If they, had, like, they didn't have many shooters, and the shooters they did have took exclusively slap shots. Yeah. Like that was it was it, this was the era for sure where like if you had an open like an open lane to the net you didn't try and deke you didn't try and risk it up top you like wound up and tried to hammer it as hard as you could at the goalie. And I think there was a reminder why because we saw I mean Marion Hosa had two breakaways on the same shift mm -hmm. in the third overtime period uh, was not exactly you know a brilliant uh, you know, I mean he, I'm not going to criticize him for the the move dis, the moves that he made or the decisions he made but it wasn't like we were seeing an abundance of skill out there. We saw a lot of chances, a lot of wasted chances, frankly, where the guys just didn't have uh, much in the way of creativity. It was a lot of shooting. It was a lot of winding up and letting it rip. And uh, I guess we've seen the game change a lot in the last two decades just for that reason. Yeah, this was, you know how a lot, in, in the last podcast we did in the 2006 game, I was remarking about how fast of a game it was and how I was surprised. Yeah, there was no trickery this time. This was a slow hockey game. This, yeah, like, yeah. It was a hard hockey game, but it was it was slow. And it was it seemed for like it seemed more than four years of a difference. Oh yeah. Like oh, yeah. especially at the end of that twenty two thousand six game where it was it was starting to fly a little bit. We were it seemed to speed up. Didn't really speed up. It certainly slowed down, and obviously fatigue played a role in that. Uh, but it was not 
it was much more of a plotting game and there was a lot more stick checking. I mean, we, we talked in, about the 2006 game, but all the ticky tacky penalties, there was a lot that would have been called in this one. Like you could, you could basically just hook, you know, 50% of your, use 50% of your strength to hook at any time. But if you go above that, you might get called. Like you just had that much leniency where you could do it as long as you didn't put your full might into it. Oh yeah. It was like, it, yeah, the stick infractions were insane. Like, and you, when I, you really narrow down the whole clutch and grab, like there's a reason why this was like the dead puck era for sure. But it was, it, it was wild, man. Like the, like I didn't see a lot of like really dirty penalties, but just listen to the broadcast and Bob Cole and Harry Neal, just they're the, that's the apex mountain right there. <laughs> like those two were just on one tonight, but they were talking about, this is Jacques Mart- Martin, I believe, who is the, uh, the, the coach of the, the Sens at the time. And they were talking about this, how far we've come talking about changing on the fly. Like it was like, it was, it was like Corsi or how, how it, they were talking about changing on the fly back then. Like how we talked about Corsi in like 2012. Like it was just this crazy thing. Like I remember they were talking about, he was saying like, yeah, Jacques Lemaire, like they practice changing on the fly in, in practice. It's they're one of the only teams that does it. And it burned them right here. I don't know if this fad's going to stick around. It's like, well, now it has there's something about the imperfection of those guys way back when like bob cole obviously uh started to you know lose certain elements of his broadcast in the last 10 years probably the last 15 maybe 20 years of his career to be honest but there was it was very simple with those guys it wasn't overly analytical and as much as i like the smart analysis we now have in the game when you're watching an old game you want that you want i kind of want those mistakes i want that just that rawness of it where these guys didn't put they didn't put too much into it it seemed it no. seemed like they were you know they showed up for the morning skate they had a couple t- discussions with some people they chatted it up a little bit they shared some anecdotes but they didn't like dive too far into the numbers and that's what makes these games that's fitting to these games or it befits these games if it was like it would seem out of place if they were talking too much uh about you know obviously analytics weren't around back then but talking too much about the nitty gritty or what have you. It seemed that it, it makes most sense that it's kind of basic, the, the commentary. And if it wasn't basic, it wouldn't fit the time period, I guess. No, it, yeah, it was, it, it was so funny the, the way they remark about certain things. Um, it was a power play in, in overtime, I think the first overtime period. And Caberlet had it at the top of the, of the point and he had a lane and Bob Cole just goes, Caberlet's got it and he doesn't like to shoot for some reason. So He's just holding it and holding it. Like, it was just the way that they flippantly, like, would just throw that out. Like, you don't really hear that now, but he's just like, and for some reason, this guy just will not shoot. Like, it's just the, vo- the, the sound of Bob Cole's voice announcing a goal, whether it was Toronto or Ottawa, is just, it's like chicken soup for the soul. Like, it is, it is what we need in these dire times, like, just hearing that guy. Because he's just, I don't care if, he tell, if, if he's a brilliant st- statistician. I don't care if, you know, he can tell me, you know, what this graph says or anything like that. He just knew how to call a hockey game back back then. That's the voice I grew up listening to. It's the voice I'm sure you grew up listening to as well, um, old man. Uh, but it was just, it, it, was, it was great. It was, it was a great little blast, of, blast from the past or blast to the past, either one. Harry Neal as well. I mean, he's a guy that I always really, really oh, yeah. enjoyed. Uh, and I was a little disappointed that he wasn't on the call as much as we enjoyed Cassie Campbell. And it was her first ever broadcast, which is kind of cool to, to just enjoy that. Uh, but Harry Neal, he he is Bob Cole is Bob Cole, but Harry Neal was so important to the success of those broadcasts and what made them so much fun because he kind of had that he didn't really care attitude where he just sort of said what he wanted to say. He wasn't, you know, 
again, he wasn't overly researched or whatever. He just kind of shot from the hip, which was, which was pretty fun back in the day. Uh, and those two were an amazing tandem. Uh, we should uh, go through the lines. There's a couple other things. We can go through the lines. There's also, I, I have a couple takes that I want to go by. Maybe we'll do one take here before we go through the lines. Sure. And the thing that stuck out to me with this game was that it was the closest you could ever come to having a Hall of, Flair, Hall of Fame player in the game, but not having a Hall of, Hall of Fame player actually be in the game. Okay, so Matt Sundin was out with a broken wrist, mm -hmm. Hall of Famer. Yes. The, there were so many guys that were close to or will be Hall of Famers involved in this game, but are not officially enshrined. Alex McGillney, I mentioned, he's yes. up this year. Alfred's, Daniel Alfredson's been up. Zidane Char is still playing, but he's a future Hall of Famer for sure. Marion Hossa mm -hmm. is up soon, and he's probably a future Hall of Famer for sure. He's Curtis, jo Curtis Joseph has been a guy that has been on the ballot, hasn't quite got in. I believe he's still on the ballot. So there's so many guys that are on the fringe of, or on the, on the brink of being in or were just hurt and not available for this game. But there was a lot of Hall of Fame-worthy talent in this game with no Hall of Famers in it. Yeah, you're, mi you're missing uh, Chris Neal on, on that list. No, yes. yes. He was uh, more, more restrained than I expected him to be in a game of this magnitude. That's, another, that's, a, that's what I was going to get to, is that mm -hmm. you mentioned all, all, this, uh, all these sort of rough players and, and guys that can, that can you know, turn the heat and temperature up in the game. And really, that's, uh, that was sort of a Pat Quinn hallmark, is he wanted those guys. Like, is, you kind of – another take I have is – I'll get to it, but there's – there's another – that was what Pat Quinn wanted. He wanted a lot of lunch pail guys. He wanted a lot of blue-collar guys. And for as many tough guys and guys that love to mix it up as there were in this game, there were really – it was, you know, disappointedly level-headed, in my opinion. Guys like yeah. Ty Domi, Darcy Tucker, Chris Neal, Shane Corson, Sedano Chara, Gary Roberts, Wade Belak. Wade Belak didn't play Green again. Even. Travis Green. There were so many guys that could mix it up. A lot of them were Leafs, but there was guys on the Senators as well. And really – there was a couple scrums late when people are getting tired and a little bit, bit irritable, but this is a pretty level-headed game, surprisingly, for the stakes that were involved and who was on the, on the ice. Absolutely. I, I want to go through, because this game was triple overtime, and we, we, did, this, we did this last time as well, but I want to go through the, um, the, the players, like the ice time leaders for each team, because I think it is pretty wild how, how much hockey some, some guys played. You want to do the lines first, and then we'll, we'll yes, sort of actually, tackle, yeah, that at, tackle that as we go? That is a great idea. Okay, so no Matt Sundin. That's the headliner. That was the surprise for me, which was very disappointing that yeah, you know, the Leafs' best player wasn't playing in this game. Uh, he didn't play in the series too. at all. Matt Sundin did not play in the series at all. They you were also me with that. They were also missing Renberg, Gary Volk, Dmitry Yuskevich, Corey Cross, and and you mentioned Ponikarovsky. So they were down about five, six regulars. Can and you it imagine? Made, it made for a pretty imagine. weak lineup, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Dude, like, can you imagine the Leafs going into a playoff series against a heated rival? Like, against, like, that was, Ottawa was their Boston at the point, at the time, except, you know, Toronto always beat Boston, um, mm -hmm. Ottawa. But, like, can you imagine going into a game without, like, Hyman, uh, Matthews, Matthews, Barry, um, probably one, like, Kapanen in, in like, Ponikarovsky comparison, and then, like, uh, Justin Hall? Like, that's, like, most of their, like, good role players are just out. That's essentially playing. essentially what they were dealing with, yeah. Yeah, like can you you can you imagine? And I I was too young, so I don't think that I was a, I was you know dialed into the 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 narrative talk. But can you imagine the narratives heading into that game? Like if it, put that in in these terms, like if the Leafs win a triple overtime game against a divisional rival in a playoff series, 
missing five or six regular key contributors from their lineup and they, they and they win it can you imagine the freaking narratives that would come from that and the divisional rival was fully healthy too yeah uh, I, I, another thing about harry neal is he like broke it down so plainly like it was perfect for a rewatch because he explained exactly what happened when he was going like through the lines knew. it's like if they did that now we'd be listening to it being like yes we know austin matthews is not playing we know like it, like it would like the way they spelled it out would have been so redundant uh, mm-hmm. if in this day of age because you are so dialed in or most people are so dialed in and there's information everywhere and it's not like you're just watching the hockey game and you're learning about everything that's happening you know the whole story coming into games now maybe you didn't back then but that seemed to be the case where they just laid it out for us and we could kind of understand what was going on uh, before the game a little bit better which was appreciated uh, but we will go through the lines here we'll start with the Leafs top line. Uh, Gary Roberts, obviously the hero on left wing. Alan McCauley. Yeah, I want to get in. The stand-in for Matt Sundin is Alan McCauley. So to to translate to this year or this day of age, that would be what? Uh, It'd be like Kerfoot. It'd be like Kerfoot standing. It would, in it would be it would be Kerfoot going to play top line center with uh, Hyman and Mitch Marner. Or like Adam uh, Brooks getting called up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, but that helmet. I mean, I, I know that was has to do Thank with concussions. You. Oh my that, gosh! Thank you for bringing that up. The, the that helmet was the helmet was. Uh, I think that was the first like you know we're we're. What is that? What is no, that helmet? I, I'm pretty sure it was for concussions because he had concussion history. Yeah. Uh, dealt with concussions, and I think they came up with that model, and it did not fly. It mm. it was like he was like the first and only player to wear that. I remember that back in the day. There was speaking of concussions, they. No one cared about concussions in this game. Well, Yurke like, Lume probably yes. went out with a concussion and, and no one said anything about Lume. He was on the next shift. I had that in there. I'm like, Yurke Lume definitely has a At least he went concussion. out. And that was such a headshot from... Oh, yeah. That's suspendable this day of age for sure. Ah, we got Paris in there. That's like a hard fine, okay? That don't, was too... Hit- too crazy. That's, how, that's how hitting was. Like, I always... It's such a weird thing to, like, bring up your minor hockey days. But that's how it was back then. People would yeah. hit with their hands up like that. And that's exactly what Chris Neal did. Taught. And now that's you can't you hit. can't do that anymore. Like obviously that's if you get your hands up to the face, that's an automatic suspension or should be an automatic suspension nowadays. Uh, but that seems like that was the way it was back then. It's just crazy. Uh, to finish that line was the guy I'm unreasonably disappointed with after watching a game eighteen late eighteen years later, Jonas Hoagland, who did absolutely nothing in this game. He was the Chad Kilger of this game. Definitely. Put it in those first numbers. line, first line Kilger. Just like so annoyed that he's, that he's just out there and not doing anything. You are getting the, it's like the wasted opportunity. You're getting a prime opportunity here and you're wasting it. You're doing nothing. You know the he story had, behind No. no go for it. No, I was just going to say he had three more years of sort of waste being wasted. Uh, not wasted, not wasted. He was wasting away on that top line with Sundin. I mean, that was his best year, the one from uh, the, the season that we watched. Uh, and he just sort of weathered away, withered away, basically did nothing with his four years, the Leafs after that. You know the story behind the Leafs and trading him? No. So essentially, I think it was 2006, 2005, around that time. Um, it was the trade deadline. And the Leafs had a, a trade set up for, uh, for, to send Jonas Hoagland to Boston. I think it was for a fourth round pick or something. But their fax machine broke, and they missed the deadline, so they had to keep them. Wow. They would have – and that, if that doesn't sum up the Leafs, like, to a T right there, of that era, of the John Ferguson Jr. era right there, I don't think anything does. Because they, 
a, they botched a what should have been a trade that a general manager makes in their sleep because their fax machine broke and they missed the deadline. So not only did they screw up not getting an asset here, they now have to keep this player who knows that they who knows that he's not welcome there. They tried to get rid of him for the rest of the season. It's just like anytime I look at Jonas Hoagland, I think of that and I'm just like, this is it's the funniest thing in the world. How they just completely botched his his departure. Are they still faxing trades in? What do they do? Probably you know what it's the NHL. I bet they probably like Xerox them to there's each gotta other. There's gotta be there's gotta be something. There's got to be like an official man. Like you have to have both teams in it and they're like an agreement that you're signing off to something. I don't know. They page each other. They pay, they're still paging each other. I yeah. can't, no, I can't see Kyle Dubas using a pager. Two cell phones, but not a pager. Yeah. Two cell phones at the same time though. At the same time, definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay. The second line was listed as course and green Domi, but it was really Darcy Tucker, Robert Reichel and Alexander McGilney. Oh yeah. Uh, that's a pretty solid fun line. Although like Hoagland, I was disappointed in Reichel this entire game. That's a 2002 ass line right there. That is, yeah, it really is. Like, that is the most, that every one of those players was probably at their peak at that moment right there and played the perfect kind of style of hockey. Like, Travis Green didn't really move that much, but he is so, I remember him being so clutch because he would just stand in the same spot and get a pass and fire it home in an empty net and all the leaves would pour onto him. That's, that's what my image of, of Travis Green is. And so he, he did that in the games. I think it was the game's opening goal. Um, but that's a, that is a 2002 line right there. 100%. Uh, yeah. And Ty Domi, like, he could play a little bit back then. Like, there was a little bit of skill there. And he, he oh, wasn't, yeah. like, surprisingly, he wasn't at all interested in mixing it up. He, I don't think he went nose-to-nose with Neil at all. Maybe Neil was a little bit younger back then and it wasn't quite established that, you know, those two would be squaring off like they would, I'm sure, uh, as the years went on. But uh, Ty Domi was it was he was surprisingly focused on doing things in the offensive zone not policing out there Shane Corson you could tell sort of this is the end of Shane Corson the the beginning of the end for him he wasn't that effective out there uh and Travis Green was like uh, I guess you could say the face-offs were his most uh obvious uh, Mm -hmm. asset out there in that game but they they definitely caused some pressure in the offensive zone uh they did so with success in the first period uh, for sure. Uh, but that was a fun line to watch, certainly, in this game. So much fun. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Um, yeah, Travis Green was was hilarious to watch. Like, Ty, Ty Domi, I have in my notes. Like, Ty Domi is like if Zach Hyman took, like, cocaine before every game. Like, because he, he, his forechecking, like, ca- directly caused the first goal. And I was impressed by how well the Leafs forechecked here. But, like, Ty Domi is a guy, he just crashes into the boards without abandon would just have his stick flying nowhere. If it hit someone, whoops, my bad. It was just incidental contact. Like, that's, that's the way I play. And his dive in the first period for the first – for the Leafs' first um, uh, penalty or, I guess, power play of the game, it was Wade Redden kind of just gives him a little chip while Ty, Ty's skating by. And he just turns into, like, the 2002 U.S. Uh, Olympic diving team. Like, it was hilarious. Like, he just – and it was so perfectly timed and so well. Like, the refs fell for it completely. He was a master of that crap. It was, it's like if Zach Hyman had – like, Zach Hyman has, is, is nothing but a pure, wholesome boy. It's like if Zach – if you took that pureness out of him and injected, like, hatred, that's what it would be like. That was the line that sort of – it reminded me of why Maple Leafs fans are the way they are, why they, <laughs> why they covet these things. 
because yeah, those yeah. those are really the glory years, right? For for a lot of uh, a lot of people of of this generation, of one generation before, these were the most successful teams for the Leafs in a long time. Pat Quinn was this person, this sort of icon to idolize That's the most successful a legend team in my lifetime. That's exactly, the farthest they've ever gone it's, in my and, life. And he this the legend in hockey uh, at the helm. He loves these sort of these greasy lunch pail tough guys who can score goals, who can skate, who can throw the body around. That's what he covered. That's what the players did. That's what the most successful team in history did. So all these people, all these fans that have, that remember these years, covet these specific attributes. And because this team, the current team, has gone away from a lot of it, yes, they still have tough guys. Yes, they still have guys that hit and are physical, but not too many of them. And the ones that are, are still revered and celebrated. Uh, but that's a reason why there's there's so many fans that go the opposite way so far because they want this type of hockey. They remember it. They remember that it was successful. And that's what they believe is going to be successful now. Now the game has changed so much. Uh, and maybe the Leafs have gone too far in one, in one direction. Uh, but that's, I think, why you have all these guys calling into radio shows complaining about the current players and they're not tough enough and all this and trade him and trade that and Nylander, the witch hunt for him last year, that's because they remember these glory years. They remember how they had these glory years, but they don't remember that there was a ceiling, and there was a ceiling with this team who could only crash and bang towards, you know, the second and third round. They could never get over the hump. And maybe there's something for being in the middle where you have these guys that help you get so far, but you need the top-end talent, and it seemed like the Leafs always missed the top-end talent, even though they pleased fans with the style that they did have. Oh, yeah, like if you look on this this roster like there's no there's no top end talent no one's going to be mistaken for you know like look where Matthews is on the totem pole and when you look at like I guess the best player on the ice which is Gary Roberts like Gary Roberts is great but the guy scored like you know max of like 70 points right like he's uh, let me actually fact check that to make sure but he's like this was this is the this was essentially the team that got people you know that that, that solidified the Nylander witch hunt crew like <laughs> like I like if you if you took a poll last night when this game was played, the happiness level of of everyone in the GTA, the uncles would be pulling the highest. They they were loving this game, and I bet how many times I would love to know a counter of how many times you know Uncle Doug or someone turned to turned to his his nephew watching this game with him, you know, drinking a a, a maple light or something, and going that you know things just aren't the way they used to be. You know, this was, this was hockey. Like just turn around and be like, that was hockey. This kind of hockey is, it was slow plotting crash bang. And that's what a lot of the Leafs fans want the team to be. And when they have, they see something different, they get scared. They see a guy like Nylander, who's just all skill. They get scared and they lash out because people are scared of, of different stuff. And this was, this was, if anything, a, a return to the comfort zone for those guys last night. Cause this was everything that I think they wished these Leafs would be even though that team, that kind of team wouldn't be successful now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's completely true. I mean, that was definitely a flashback for, for a lot of people that, you know, miss the way the game used to be played, or at least miss the way the, the Maple Leafs used to play. Uh, but we've seen different forms of that, right? I mean, we saw a team try to blend it in the previous iteration around Phil Kessel, and that still wasn't enough either. I mean, there was tons of guys that could crash and bang, uh, but there was always something missing from those rosters too. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's something for there's something to those those teams and that way of playing hockey. Like I I miss those years to a certain extent. They were fun to watch, but it was also limiting. It was definitely limiting because they didn't have enough talent, 
And then they, I think they realized they needed more talent. They went after old guys who had already had their best years, like Ron Francis and Brian Leach and Phil Housley, and they had already fallen off a little bit too much. So they, those teams had that type of identity, but they could never blend in enough talent around Matt Sundin to really make it work. Uh, but again, it's, it's, uh, it, it's certainly fun to look back and watch those teams every now and then because uh, it was a different way and it was, you know, it was fun, but it was limiting at the same time. It's a fun team to rewatch, you know? Yeah. Like if you, if you had to, if we had to, you know, do a Live Laugh Leafs after, you know, let's say the world's normal and we had to do a Live Laugh Leafs after every game of that team, it would be rough because that's a plodding team. That's a team that, you know, it, it's all stick checks and stick infractions and penalties and whatnot. And there were some really fun moments in that. But I feel like if we had to do that 82 times a year, opposed to the high octane product we have now, where even the bad games are enter- entertaining to talk about, at least it would be great. Like it, this, we romanticize the past a lot. And this is a prime example of a game where the past is completely romanticized, where we think of this as a gladiator match. And it was, it was awesome. But when we really look at it as an entertainment product, like it's a fun time to rewatch, but if you have to watch 82 games of, the, of this a season, it's like, it, it, there's a reason why it was called the dead puck era. It'd be frustrating for different reasons, right? It's frustrating uh, because they didn't quite have, like it wasn't as good of a game back then, but they had this yeah. team that had identity and it was, and you were able to, you know, revere and back these guys. And now this year or in recent years, it's all the skill in the world but it's frustrating because they haven't put it all together. So it's, it's frustrating for different reasons. The third line, though, of Darcy Tucker, Robert Reichel, and Alex McGilney. Now, Alex McGilney is a player who belonged in this generation, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Oh, Darcy yeah. Tucker could play in any generation. This is a line that works across multiple, multiple decades, uh, with the exception of Robert Reichel, who is, as I mentioned, was very frustrating as someone who uh, you, you, maybe the name – gives more than what he actually was back in the day because you remember oh Robert Reichel he was a guy uh but he was sort of just you know do anything he was taking up space other than winning well he was at the draw on the winning goal but he didn't exactly win that draw we we remember Robert Reichel because he's a guy whose name was called a lot during games like I just remember like Bob Cole saying the name Robert Reichel a lot and also Mm. the fact that him and Michael Renberg got mixed up all the time but other than that, like he was just, he was just a guy. Like he didn't really do anything. He was just kind of like a supporting player. I think uh, in the game, he had, uh, you know, he had a good four shots on goal. He was close to the top of the leaderboard in that. He had an assist, you know, it was, it was good, but he took, you know, he, he played 29 minutes. He had 41 shifts. It was near the top as well. And yet I can't remember a single thing he did other than not win the final draw. Like it's, it's remarkable. Like it, it, that's, that's, I think, what was the downfall of the Leafs of that era is that they had a lot of guys who were names who, you know, people could recognize, they remember, and that when, you, when you're asked to kind of recall a specific thing that they do, you can't, like, they don't, they had a lot of Alexander Kerfoots, you know? He was definitely, he had Kerfoot-like Malgan. tendencies, for sure, Robert Reichel. Alex McGillney, though, that's a player that is, uh, he played oh. in the wrong generation. He, he belongs on this Leafs team? he belongs in this decade of decade of hockey for sure he's he he played the game unlike anyone else on the ice uh in that triple ot game that we watched and we're, we're discussing now obviously uh he just <laughs> he we're just, doing right now that's what we're doing right now just a little reset a radio reset <laughs> uh yeah he's uh he was it looked like he was he was a fish in the wrong ocean yeah like he was he looked completely out of place like he was supposed to he be looked like a time now. traveler he looked like a time traveler and it was, it was fun to watch him. 
Uh, we'll go to the fourth line that did not see much action. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the first name of two of these guys if I hadn't watched it. And I might have forgotten one already. But Wade Belak was the yep. left winger. He didn't play at all again. Uh, this game was over 100 minutes long. And I think he played like seven minutes. He played ridiculous. four minutes and 57 seconds. Four minutes. Okay. Of a 104 minute and 30 second game. So we've watched two Leaf games that featured Wade Belak, and I think he played a combined eight minutes. Five minutes. No, Five he, minutes. He, he, played, he played 40 seconds in, 2000, in the 2000. Oh, he played 40 seconds in that game. Oh. He had one shift in the first period, and then he went away. That's uh, Why that, have him there? That's like, burning we, a roster spot. Yeah, uh, like why? As much as we love Pat Quinn, and he did a lot of great things, that is questionable and, uh, I guess, a sign of the times. Uh, the next is Bob Wren. Bob? Am I right, yes, Bob? It's Bob Wren. Bob Wren. I think this is his last game in the NHL. You think so? I think it was. I think I looked that up earlier. Nine minutes Bob, and nine seconds. Bob Wren got called up after a big year on uh, in St. John's. Mm-hmm. He did. Obvious, obviously, there was uh, injuries at play, and I think he only played one single game in 2002. No, he played one game in the regular season and one game in the playoffs, so this was the last game he would ever play in the NHL. And then there was, what, Paul Healy, I think was the last one? Andrew Healy? Paul Healy? It's Paul Healy. On hockey hockey reference, it says it's Paul Healy. I had Andrew, but uh, it's probably Paul. And that you know tells what? you all you need to know about the Who right cares? winger on the fourth line for the Maple Leafs. Let's go on to the defense core, which was basically a blender the entire game. Uh, as it was lined up or as it was presented to us from by uh, Harry Neal, it was McCabe and Caberly on the first unit. They actually didn't play. They didn't play together at all in the game. No, it was mainly uh, – I saw a lot of Aki Berg and, and, and Brian McCabe out there. Uh, was he, it or was it, was it Berg and Caberlet? I think it was Berg and Caberlet, and yeah. then McCabe was basically with, going with Pilash and Anderson – or uh, Erickson, basically yeah. Eric, just rotating shifts. Anders Erickson. You could have gunned him – like, again, I remember, like, where I was, like, what the weather on the, on the day of me seeing this game was. You could have had a, a gun to my family's head and said, did, Al, did Anders Ericsson play in this game? And I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I, th- th- that is the one player who has slipped completely through my sort of like my, my brain from, from this era. I, could, like, I couldn't tell you what, his na- like, what he looks like. I couldn't tell you where he's from. I couldn't tell you a single distinctive characteristic about him. I forgot that uh, Anders Ericsson was a part of the, these Leafs. No chance I would have remembered anything about Anders Ericsson, but he did have a solid defenseman number 44 back there. He looked mm-hmm. like he, he, he looked like he knew what he was doing, so he probably fooled me enough. Uh, but Carl, Morgan Riley. Carl Pilash, though, he, was, he actually put a stamp on the game, and I don't know how nothing came of his career because he was really good. And this is, I think, was this his rookie season? Yeah, he played two NHL games during the season. He played 60-something in, in St. John's, then he got called up, and he played, okay, Carl Pilash. Carol I mean, the, confi- the confidence in your first oh, yeah. NHL postseason game to just roll up the sideboards, cut around the net, and feed Travis Green for the opening goal. I mean, that should, have been, a si- that should have been a sign of things, of things to come. I don't know what happened to Carl Think P. about Lush. what Twitter would have done if a guy who get a right-handed defenseman gets called up from, uh, from the Marlies th- this, in this era. What Twitter would have done if a right-handed defenseman gets called up from the Marlies and on, on like, the first shift of the game, essentially, like streaks down the wing, goes around the corner and sets up uh, Travis, like a, a player essentially for like an empty uh, backdoor goal to open the scoring in a home playoff game in the second round. Like Twitter Set, would lose their mind. Setting up the Alex Kerfoot of this team. The Alex Kerfoot is both McCauley and uh, Travis Green. 
or and Michael Renberg. He is everybody. They were See just what a, I'm saying? They just have a so bunch many of, Kerfoots. Just a bunch of Alex Kerfoots out there. Was, and yeah. that's the downfall. But exactly. Carol Pilash played, okay, Car- keep okay, in mind, he, this is Carl Pilash. He played in 11 postseason games that, that year. So I guess he was sort, he of a, sort of a staple. They must have had some, you know, you know, lasting injuries on the back end for him to play that much. Uh, he played. You know how much he played in this game? No, how much? He 40, it had to have been a lot. 44 minutes and 40 seconds. Now, what was McCabe? He was like 56 or something? 52, 42. 52 was, minutes. So it was so, the, the, the leaders were 52, 42 for McCabe, 48, 01 for Caberlet, and then 44, 40 for Carol Pilash. What did Berg play? Berg actually finished pretty low. He, he, fin- he played yeah, he 28 play, minutes. He didn't he play played, that much. He played lot, less obviously. than Robert Reichel and just a little bit more than Jonas Hoagland. So they were basically going down to four defensemen with Caberlet, McCabe, uh, Caberlet, McCabe, and then and two guys, Erickson. two guys who were basically non-factors on any team in Anders Ericsson and Carl Pilash. Pilash had Car- four shots on goal too. Pilash played 67 more games over the next two seasons and then just went home to the Czech Republic. You know what? Like played he- until 2018. What? Carl Pilash played until 2018 in the Czech League. Are you serious? Yeah, had two goals and six assists in 35 games. 49 penalty minutes, still mixing it up. That is the craziest thing I've ever heard. He's 42 years old, so he was still probably just under – he was probably 40 years old when he tra- retired. Dude, that's like when someone says that, like, Picasso died in, like, the 70s or something. Like, I, I picture that guy being, like, painting the Sistine Chapel or something, and I'm like, the 70s and this – that is insane. He played until 2018. Austin Matthews and Carl Pilash played professional hockey at the same time. <laughs> In the same continent. Travis Dermott and Carl Pilash played professional hockey at the same time. That's wild. I, I mean, Bob Wren is my guy after this, though. Yeah, he's, oh, yeah? He's a fascinating career. What's his, let's <laughs> want to do the Bob Wren deep dive? So Bob Wren played five total NHL games. Actually... He played six because one of them was a playoff game. And this was his last game ever. Then he went and toured the AHL. Then he went to, you know, Austria, Germany, played in the EIHL. What is that? Nottingham Pan. That's uh, is that the that? Great Britain League up until 2014. But the, the thing that gets me about him is he looked like a star in the making with that Nike helmet, the little shiner. He looked like a yeah. guy who was going to captivate this Leafs fan base. He looked like he had the all the makings of coming out and, you know, bursting onto the scene and stamping this game and, you know, going on a big playoff run and becoming one of Pat Quinn's boys because he looked like one of Pat Quinn's boys. He has uh, a name it, to be one of Pat Quinn's boys, but too. But it, it, it never happened for Pat or Bob Wren. The Bob, the, the, the two-syllable the, the two full name, it was like a Bob, was definitely like a, a Pat Quinn kind of thing. It's like just Bob Wren. Guy, if he, if he had a beard, would have been, I bet he would have played, you know, three more seasons with the Leafs. Other than that, I don't know if there's anything else that stands out. Brian McCabe had, like, the perfect Fred Durst goatee, which I liked. Yeah, he, uh, he, we he met, looked exactly like that. We yeah. mentioned McCauley's helmet. I think that's it for about uh, – it's it for the Leafs. So we'll quickly run down the Senators. Uh, how are we doing for time here? We are we're, – We're running a little minutes. long already. Yeah. But we, we don't have much to go through the game. There was, we did uh, a Bob Randy. There was over – the over, Oh, yeah, of course. Over 100 minutes of game, t- uh, game time was played, but I don't know how much was that interesting. So we'll go quickly through the Senators' lines here. Uh, stop if you uh, want to comment on any of these guys. Mm-hmm. Sean McEachern, Radic Bonk, Marion Hossa. 
a hell of a top line. Who the hell was Sean McEachern? That's a hell of a top line. Sean McEachern's like the one guy that stood out to me out of this. I don't know why. That I yeah, remembered. I, I only really started to notice Marion Hosa when he almost ended the game like twice in overtime. Other than that, he like was pretty pretty invisible during this game. But who the like again, Sean McEachern is Anders Ericsson. Like I remember all of these players from back in the day. And I cannot tell you anything about Sean McEachern. At least Sean McEachern had a career. I was surprised that Marion Hosa was still four years into his career at this point. Because he didn't look that dominant. No. Like a future Hall of Famer, for sure. A guy that won three, three or four Stanley Cups. Did he win four? I think he won three. Because he, he won one with Detroit. Oh, no, he played on both oh. the teams that didn't win. So yeah. he, won, he won three then. He, uh, he, played on, he played on Detroit, lost. No, he played on Pittsburgh, lost. Pittsburgh Detroit, lost, Detroit, lost. On, yeah. Yeah. Played on played on Detroit, lost to Pittsburgh the next season, and then and then signed with the Blackhawks in two thousand nine, and then won the cup that year. Uh, so he did pretty well for himself eventually, but he didn't look like that dominant player not until the third period, at least. No, he was uh, like he 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 turned a, he flipped a switch for sure, but it was just so weird to see like a young Marion Hosa. You you picture him as just like this guy who is consistently grizzled and like this veteran. And yet there he is, just like a young whippersnapper, not a, not a smidge of, of, of facial hair on his face, even though it's the second round of the playoffs. And he's just almost ending the game twice. Like, it's, it, it's, it's wild. Second line, Benoit Brunet, not a guy. That, Who? Not a Who guy. Is he? Not a guy that stuck out to me at all. Um, and then Todd White. I remember him. I remember him too, but he is very anonymous now. Yeah. Like, he's, there are certain players from this that like made their their mark from being part of these battles. Todd White, like you, you can't he can't go into a Canadian Tire and, and sign cards. No one knows who he is. And his winger was Daniel Alfredson. I guess we're burying the lead a little bit there. Oh man, Alfie wasn't as dominant as I thought he was going to be. He didn't have that great of a game either. No, he he looked really tired by the end of it too. So two guys that potentially are Hall of Famers that did not look like Hall of Famers, even though they were. Pretty much in the, not in the, I wouldn't say the prime of their careers, but certainly well into their careers. Yeah, Sundin looked like crap this game, too. <laughs> that was so disappointing. I know. Is that with it, a broken wrist? I'm like, what? Why is this yeah. game being shown? It wasn't even, it wasn't even just Sundin. It was like, they showed the, they showed the scratches right after the opening faceoff. So in my mind for a second, I'm like, oh, I guess Sundin's like on the second line. That's weird. And then they show the scratches and it's like half the roster is, is injured. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Like, and it's not like they put it in the order of importance. It, well, I don't even think it was alphabetical. It was just as random. Ponikarovsky was first, I remember. And I, I remember reading it just being like, oh, Ponikarovsky, that's, that's fine. And then I looked down like, Sundin? Oh, man, they're screwed, even though I knew they won. Third line, Magnus Arvidsson, Mike Fisher. Yeah, young Mike Fisher. And Martin Havlat. Both Fisher and Havlat. I mean, this is sort of a theme. It was like these guys that, I mean, those, those two were certainly young. Uh, but a lot of like a lot of good players that became something for sure, but just didn't really look like that player that we remembered. Yeah, Mike Fisher, like he's, it's wild to think that he was playing hockey last year and he was a guy in, in this. But it's just like he, like that was just it's a, such a different game. Like I always have such respect for the guys who can bridge these eras, and yeah. a guy like Mike Fisher specifically, like he was still playing hockey and not terrific hockey but still playing hockey for for what was supposed to be a contending team last year and the game is it, it looks it looks nothing it looks unrecognizable to what this game was so it's good for him for being able to you know to bridge that to bridge that era gap there and he scored and it was a it was a really weak shot but uh, i'm sure we'll get into cujo at some point but like it was he it was, it was pretty remarkable 
he was the Mark Giordano of this game where he just yes. sort of randomly showed up, did not expect to see him at all. And then he had an actual impact of the game, even though he wasn't, you know, uh, one of the key players in the game, I guess. Uh, sure. Fourth line, Jody Hull. I think it's yeah. Who? Yuha Yolenin. Yuha Yolenin? Juha uh, Yolenin? I guess so. Yuha uh, has to be. I, I'm not sure. There was not much out of the fourth line, with the exception of Chris Neal, who's, uh, you know, he was full of, uh, on his way to becoming Chris Neal at that point. He wasn't there, though. He played the lowest of any Sen, and it was still 16 minutes. Like, Which is surprising, because he seemed like he was involved in that game. He was, yeah, he was, he was like the Mark Giordano of that time, where he played like seven minutes in that game and still was able to contribute a lot, like we remember. It was, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Like, this was, it, it's funny to watch these guys who, who at least, like, in my life, because I, I, you know, being part of, like, since I've been writing about hockey and, and following hockey in a semi-professional capacity up until this point, like a lot of these players are in my mind entrenched as veterans. Like Hosa was always a veteran. Neil was always a veteran. Even uh, Fisher, always a veteran to me. And it's so weird to see these guys unable to grow playoff beards in the second <laughs> round, you know, like uh, as the rookies of the team who aren't getting any ice time. It's, it, it's wild. Well, speaking of veterans, I mean, that veterans made up the – Ottawa Senators defense. Maybe they weren't veterans back then, but I think they probably always were veterans. Uh, this was quite an impressive defense core and, and probably the reason why they were such a good team back then or they were such a good team with a goaltender like Patrick Laleem, who was never really a dominant player uh, for the Ottawa Senators. But that top pairing of Wade Redden and Zdeno Chara, I mean, that is, uh, those are two guys who were stars back in their day. Chara obviously has been a star for a very long time. Wade Redden hasn't been around for a couple of years, but that's quite a top pairing and quite a fleecing because they had just gotten Chara uh, in a trade with the New York Islanders, and he was just about to become a superstar and probably was by the time this game was played. Chara spent, for, for a guy with the reputation that Chara had back in the day, which was like this hulking guy, didn't have to move that much, you know, slap shots in the point, he spent a remarkable amount of time below the Leafs goal line in this game. He pinched a lot, way more than I thought he was, or he, I thought he would. Um, also, I was expecting Chara at this point in, in not just his career, but in the era of hockey where he could get away with literal murder. I was expecting him to be committing crimes left and right. And he, he wasn't. Like, he's, he's become dirtier as the years go on. Yeah, it was a little surprising because he was allowed to do all the things that he would have such an advantage with. Like, if, yeah. you're, allowed, if you're allowed to put your stick on guys as someone who's what is he, six foot nine and 300 six or nine. 250 pounds uh, and can do anything you want out there. Maybe he hadn't grown into himself completely yet, uh, but the way he was allowed to use his stick back then, he should have been doing anything he wanted out there. Yeah. And uh, he, like this, it seemed like he was perfectly made for this era where you don't have to move that fast. You can, yeah, you, it's the clutch and grab. You can bully young, small players. And yet he didn't really use that to his advantage. Like this was, this was a choke job by the Senators because this, this was a beaten down Leafs team and the Sens team, although they were a little more skilled, they had a lot of these guys that seemed to be fit, that seemed to fit perfectly into this era and they blew it. Like they, they, they straight up blew it against the Leafs. Uh, second pairing is Chris Phillips and Sammy Sallow. Sammy Sallow, I forgot that he was ever with the Ottawa Senators. Chris Phillips, obviously a former first overall pick. Uh, that's quite a good second pairing. Uh, mm, that's awesome. Senators, like, I mean, that's just rock solid too. Well, think about what, the, like, think what the second pairing was for the Leafs. Carol Pilash was on that. 
And they got Chris Phillips yeah. and Sammy Sallow, two guys who are good and, and were good, you know, in recent years. Well, the best case scenario was Yurke Lume and Aki Berg was their second oh. pairing because McCabe and Caberle should have played together. And mm-hmm. Erickson and Pelash was supposed to be that third pair and whatever would happen with them. But they drew it up. Pat Quinn drew it up as Yurke Lume and Aki Berg. And it only went into the blender because Lume got hurt. I think he only played like nine minutes or something like that. Yeah. No, no, he, you, Lume played two. Played two minutes. Oh, he only played two minutes? Yeah. Okay, he, so they got, were they were five, they were down to five defenders for over a hundred minutes in that game, which is pretty yeah. crazy. It's like they were already missing a lot of players. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And they, then they lost Yurke Lume, who I remember was a trade acquisition in that midseason, who you know, was supposed to be pretty decent. So it's... Like the this was this was a you know don't tell me about heart determination kind of game from the Leafs you know I'm I'm I, I wish we had the Joe Bowen call because I bet he was freaking out about this too. Third Perry Curtis Lecision who wore an A for the Senators so you know I'm not sure where he was in his career then but at least he had some value to the team in that sense and father Shane Knight Shane Ninety yeah their father and Dom and uh, that's the only reason why you know how to say that name if you know Curtis Lecision right? for real like I, you wouldn't be I'd be like Lecision no but because we you know. <laughs> Because the stat god is, uh, has that exact same name, pretty much. And Shane Knighty, who, you know, I don't think he was... Uh, who is he was, that? He was still trying to establish himself at that time. But, I mean, he turned into a decent defenseman. Or at least a defenseman that played for a long time. Yeah, Shane Knighty. Now that I think about it, I, I think I got, I got his hockey cards a lot. But other than that, like, there are so many... Like, again, like we talked about, Yulonen, Jody Hall, you know, Sean McEwen. Like, these guys, I, you couldn't... I couldn't point them out in a police lineup if my life depended on they they managed to have one anonymous player on every line which is pretty impressive and it's over yeah whereas the Leafs managed to have at least two Alex Kerfoots on every line in defense bearing which is again quite limiting uh but at least he has grease as Mike Babcock would like to oh yeah it's got jam so I have a I got a question for you there was there was something at center ice 75th season mm-hmm. commemoration it looked like i'm so glad you brought that up because the math didn't make what, sense where, so yeah, <laughs> can you explain this to me they just had the hundredth year two years ago three this, it was matthew's first year so, so it was, it was like two four. or three it was three or four years ago whatever it was but this game was only 18 years old so that's 15 years when did the leafs become the leafs which means only 90 years so they're just I, make it like they're just taking whatever number applies to whatever they want Every year can be, every five years can be a 75th or an 80th to something. Like, what is I, that? I bet the Leafs, when they did the centennial in Matthew's first year, I have a feeling they probably did that as, like, the franchise, this is how old we are. Like, we were established in 1919. 
I bet the 75 year old thing was when they became the Toronto Maple Leafs because they were, you know, they were the St. Pats in the arenas and then eventually. I guess so. That's probably, yeah, because I was looking at that and I was like, wait a second, like I'm 24 years old. So I would have had to be like born then. Like, like that doesn't make sense. Like it just, and we celebrated the hundredth year four years ago when I was 21. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. It just, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad that like you're, you've noticed a lot of the, the minutiae of this game that, that really tripped me out too. So I'm really glad like the Macaulay helmet really was like sending me through a loop there. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of bad helmets. Let's be honest. There was, oh, it was yeah. like, it was like the time period where everyone was trying new things and like the Nike helmets were like sort of tacky, but like the coolest ones that were out there. Like they were all bad. The old CCMs, it was like they were transitioning to something more modern but they were still going through all the trials of it. All the companies were just figuring out a way to do it or make these helmets look a little bit more cooler or streamlined or whatever. I think a lot of them were failing. There were a lot of bad buckets out there. Uh, but y- you were at a good place if you hadn't changed. If you're still rocking the yeah. old CCMs, you were okay. The only guy who looked cool was Marion Hosa, who had the tinted visor with the, the new Bauer helmet. So he was the only one who passed the test. The, uh, I also like the iTech buckets that, uh, that McGillney had. Like It was pretty sweet. But the the nike helmets are deified now but they do it like and and they look cool in that context but they look so bad now like i don't want to throw them under the bus but adam wilde when i, I was i played on the the celebrity hockey classic eric lindgross celebrity hockey classic team rachel's raiders shout out we i don't think we won but still it was fun um and adam wilde has a red uh nike bucket that he wears and like it just doesn't look great i mean he's that he's of that vintage right he's probably uh early 30s right and he's yeah. probably bought that I mean, bucket you know yeah 12 years ago he went out to be like hey dad you know that that guy looks pretty rad in that nike helmet i need to get that and then he still has it you know decades later and it, it's a fun it's a fun thing to wear for like shinny but if you're watching like again if you're watching like mitch marner straight down the wing in a nike helmet like that Looks a little. Looks you know, little you know who made the helmet look cool though was Matt Sundin. He, oh, I think yeah. he Just, wore that in his early years. The Leafs. I think he wore it with uh, Quebec as well uh, before he came over. He he rocked that Nike helmet pretty good. I think so I don't did, know what he so changed to. He changed to an yeah Lemieux did as well. He changed to like an oh, and Fedorov. Fedorov rocked all the oh, Nike stuff. Fedorov was the peak of that for sure. Yeah, he he could he could pull it off, but uh, it, it didn't look right on some guys. Uh, Marion Hosa was the only guy who looked like if you put if you dropped him in a game, he would look like the players do player? now in yeah. terms of like his helmet and his and his visor and all that. He was the only one who looked like he was modernized or mm-hmm. at least looked normal being modernized. Yeah. Um, what else we got here? We got a uh, we got it. Okay, let's go to Cujo. So look, the, the, the matchup in net was Cujo and Laleem. Uh, I mentioned Patrick Laleem had this like crazy run uh, coming into this game. Uh, his numbers, I'll pull them up here. Coming into the game, six starts to begin the postseason, five and one with a 0.32 goals against average, 988 save percentage. So he was absolutely on one. Wasn't the same for Curtis Joseph, but Curtis Joseph was the better goaltender in this game, I think. I, it was close, though. Like, Laleem was really good. Cujo, though, he, he was phenomenal. He made, like, three save-of-the-year candidates in the first 10 minutes of the game. It was, it was incredible. But Cujo is a lot like a soccer goalie in that he just kind of leaps in the direction that he expects the puck to be going. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the goals, like, especially on the Senators' first one, which was right off the draw, 
think it was uh was it solo right off the draw i'm pretty sure yeah he, he do, like he dove in the opposite direction of the puck and it was right off the draw and like i was watching this game with my sister and she was just like yeah this guy like she was like he's making all these crazy saves and like he he was awesome cujo is probably my favorite goalie ever and you know i would die for that guy and he's someone who like you know i would generally be starstruck to meet now even though we're reporters or whatever but um he uh there's a reason why he made all these awesome saves and it's because he was always out of position like one of the one of the one of the highlight reel goals that everyone was talking about or not highlight reel goals highlight reel saves that um was being praised by the broadcast it was within the first 10 minutes was a slap shot from the point off the rush that he that he that he he saved or stopped aside but he it looked like he was tripping while saving it and so he was just like he fell on his back and like had his legs kicked out like he did a full spread eagle on the ground and everyone's like oh crazy save no like any other nhl goaltender these days would just stand there and let it hit him meanwhile joseph like tried to do a leg kick at that time and like fell and somehow got lucky that he kicked it away it was it was really funny, and yet the guy stopped. Uh, the guy stopped fifty-four out of fifty-six shots in this game, for a nine-sixty-four save percentage, and he was he was the reason why the Leafs won this game. He was the best. He's the best Leafs goalie of my lifetime, probably the best Leafs goalie of the since like Johnny Bauer. He was more old school than I remembered him. Way more. He's like that. That was oh, it. Yeah. Was like Broder esque, where it was it was mostly stand up. It was very like reactionary. A lot of movement. A lot of uh, stacking you know, the pads it seemed like there was a lot of guessing stacking the pads like he was he didn't make me comfortable watching him in that because it is such a juxtaposition to what we see now which is mostly controlled goaltending big pads you know just taking up as much net as they possibly can it was a bit of foresight I think on the leaf so like obviously he moved on to the mm -hmm. Detroit Red Wings in the summer uh, there was I mean if I'm to believe Wikipedia it was over you know term uh, and there might have been some conflict over his usage at the Olympics. Canada yes. just won the uh, the Olympics in Salt Lake. And Martin Brodeur was the guy who played in net for most of that uh, over Curtis Joseph. So, but I think it was a little foresight on the part of the Leafs management, who apparently included Ken Dryden. I completely forgot that he was the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs at one point. Completely forgot about that until I saw him clapping in the stands after. Uh, but they made the decision to move on or... Uh, Curtis Joseph made the decision to move on when he wasn't given what he was asking for and his career kind of sharply fell off at that point and that's uh, a lot a lot is made of what happened at the lockout the game changed guys that were veterans at that point lost their place because they lost a year the, the rules changed and, and the money got a little bit tighter so he was one of those guys that seemed negatively impacted by the game changing when it did uh, but if the Leafs had signed him to a bigger contract I mean they still had some competitive years after without him. I wonder if those competitive years would have happened because he, he sort of fell off uh, quicker than I think anyone really would have imagined. So what essentially, like what was, what was a big reason why he left? And I read this, it's a book called Why the Leafs Suck. It's by Al Strachan. And I read it over the, over the, the winter holidays um, just because it was a fun little read. And it's, it's funny because this, Al Strachan did not care at all about throwing people under the bus in the mm. Leafs organization. It was great. But he said a big reason why they split why there was this big sort of ideological split was that coming back from the olympics um pat quinn was the head coach of that team and so ken dryden was all about you know the pomp and showmanship and 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 you know the the pre-game ceremonies and whatnot so we wanted to have a pre-game ceremony for the leafs who were part of the the olympics who won medals and cujo was obviously there and cujo was like i don't really want to do that like i barely played 
you know, my one game I lost and then I got replaced. And so, um, but anyway, still they decided to, to go on with the ceremony and Cujo was like told last minute that was going to happen. So he wasn't prepared. And then he wasn't, and then they had agreed upon that Quinn wasn't going to shake his hand, that he was just going to like kind of nod at him or something. So Cujo had both his gloves on at the time when they were kind of standing in that row and Quinn came over to, to shake his hand, breaking what their agreement. And so Cujo didn't have the ability to shake his hand then because he had his, his gloves on and everything. So it looked like he snubbed his coach and that was dissected in the media and everyone kind of, kind of piled on there and said there was a big feud. And I think, and it was reported then that that sort of like moment where he was just like, I don't really want to do this. I barely played. It's kind of embarrassing that you're putting me up here on this, on this podium when I didn't really contribute to this Olympic win. Can you stop doing that? And yet Dryden and Quinn went ahead and did it anyway and mm. kind of put and put Cujo in a spot where it made him look like, like a dick really by not shaking his hand. And I think that, and, and in the book at least, it's reported that that is, was a big reason why he didn't like it was it wasn't the the straw that broke the camel's back but it certainly soured the relationship to the point where like he was he was at least like open to leaving by the time free agency came along what do you remember about his return i don't remember anything i don't remember it much either i mean he played 21 games in 2008 2009 so it was second behind vesa you know what i remember i remember so yeah it was with vesa there and it was a game i can't remember who was against but it went to the shootout and Ron Wilson wanted to go Galaxy Brain. And Vesitoska had played all three periods and the overtime period. And then Ron Wilson went, you know what? For the shootout, we're putting Cujo in. A 41-year-old oh, Cujo. Yeah. Then Cujo went in, and they got scored on. They, and he let in both shooters that came in, and they lost right away. I vaguely remember that. I remember that was a big deal because it just made no sense. And it was Ron Wilson trying to get all Galaxy Brain on us, and it didn't work. And he put in his cold goaltender cold 41 year old goaltender be sitting on the bench the whole time through three periods and overtime period and he didn't make a single save in the shootout he led in the first two shots and of course that means you lose the game that was a horrendous team yeah oh that was was that the 07 and fun team it's 2008 2009 so matt sundin is gone yeah jason blake led the team in scoring with 25 goals and 63 points ponik varovsky stage and grabovsky antropov uh, those were the leading scorers. Hagman? That was, was Hagman on that team? Hagman right behind Antropov. That's a bad team. Oh. So that was that was the 07 and one team, the team that's that lost their first eight games of the year. Was it? That was that's that's the type of team that I was actively trying to avoid, I think. Yeah. I don't was, have I don't have many recollections of, of Curtis Joseph's return and and I think that's why. So I was of the age that you were when you were watching the game that we are talking about right now. Mm-hmm. And that in my formative years, my you know, like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, whatever, were that era. That's why I'm so quick to that's why I'm so angry on the podcast when they lose. <laughs> that's that's I've been I've been scarred too many times. I just had this this this, you know, uh, trigger, this this hair trigger. Hair I don't know what the what the term is, hairline trigger. I don't know. Mm. We'll let that one pass. Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you want to get into the game a little bit just in like you want to go to the, by the goals? I think that's what we did last time. The sure. goals are a little bit more uh, relevant, I guess, to the situation in the in the last podcast just because there was, you know, Matt Sundin was racking up the points and what have you. And Mark Giordano was scoring his first and second career NHL goals. But uh, we'll go through the we'll go through them just to see if there's anything that, sta- that stood out for, sure. for you. Uh, one nothing Leafs on that second line. That's really a third line. 
uh, strong for, for check from Domi and Corson and Pilash, as we mentioned, uh, gets the puck, goes for a little skate and finds Travis Green, who had a tremendous celebration for that goal. Uh, it was interesting, though, because I think this was before Lume went out and Pilash was out there for an offensive zone faceoff with Caberlet. It looked like they were mixing and matching the defense core before the injury happened and that they were mm-hmm. maybe getting a little bit aggressive. I mean, Pat Quinn's old school. I, I wasn't sure he was, you know, line matching with his, his young guy from the, from the minor leagues and getting him out there in a scoring position. Uh, but it actually worked out that way. Yeah, it was uh, – Pat Quinn is, is known for just rolling the lines and kind of going for it, but that's very much not what happened here. He probably he, – it seemed like he rolled the, the first three lines, at least forward-wise, but the fourth line barely played. Um, one thing that I noticed from just from the start of the game before the Leafs ever scored was that Brian McCabe walked so uh, Jake Gardner could run. Uh, Brian McCabe had one of the worst – defensive zone turnovers I have ever seen from a defenseman it was astonishing he had all the time in the world no one was around him he was lazily bringing it out of his zone and then the one centers player gets in his vicinity and he completely coughs it up it was Jake if it was Jake Gardner in game seven of 2018-esque it was remarkable I'm pretty sure I made a note on that and it created a chance for Daniel Alfredson I believe on the rush and it was and, one of Cujo's huge saves. And it was a huge save, but it was so weird and awkward. Like, saves like that are not made anymore. Like, literally no. sticking your leg out to, you while know. While standing up. While standing up, which just does not happen anymore. I cannot believe, I cannot believe we didn't have heart attacks over that 2002. Even, the, even 2006 or 2010, Martin Broder played. Did he not? Yeah. In the Olympics, playing like that is just like, looking back now, it's, it's, scary it's scary yeah. that a goaltender played in that way in big games because it's so it, it seems so uh irresponsible there's a reason why Brodeur got replaced in that in uh well in Vancouver exactly Luongo just got to sit in that Butter- butterfly and yeah and gave, us, uh, butterfly. gave us one of the best moments uh in our hockey lives I guess mm-hmm. um Two nothing. The, the call, the call of that golden goal, though, just the worst. Just it, it was. It could have been refined a little bit more. Uh, two nothing Leafs on a goal from Darcy Tucker. We mentioned his shot. Uh, it was Alex McGillney that forced the turnover. Bad exchange between Salo and Phillips. Uh, and again, it was that shot. I mean, they they sort of took the sting out of uh, all the momentum that Patrick Laleem had had going with two quick goals in the first period. And it was Darcy Tucker who continues to be a star in the games that we're rewatching. Yeah, it's Darcy Tucker. Like, he he's one of those guys. Like, I think that this might be sacrilege for me to say, but a lot of these like these guys, these hard nosed, tough guys who are deified by Leafs fans these days, don't really deserve that. You know, there there are a lot of these guys who weren't as good as as you remember them. Wendell Clark, for example, I think is one of the most overrated players ever, just because like people talk about how the entire Leafs should devote the way they play to what how he played, and yet the guy like didn't really score that much like he wasn't ever like a top you know top player in the league Darcy Tucker is pro is way better of a hockey player than I ever remember him being he was awesome he was awesome this game half of the the, half of the forward core is hurt and Darcy Tucker steps up he's hitting everything in sight he's faster than I remember him being his shot like we talked about is wicked and he looks like I was watching this next to my sister and he's, and she's like, that is what a hockey player looks like. He has like a, he's got a shiner, the, the, I will kill you at a moment's notice look in his eyes, that the hair, 
you know, that's all that's permanently wet from the puck drop to the end of the game. Just it, remarkable. He is, if anything, we should be talking about more players need to play like Darcy Tucker opposed to, you know, Travis Green or, or, or you know, Wendell Clark. Great celebration on the goal. He didn't seem to wake up from a physicality perspective until near the end of the game, but he had a couple shifts where he was just running around, like bowling. He turns into a bowling ball on some shifts and yeah. he's just wrecking people. And you definitely don't see that from this, this Leafs team. I don't know if it's necessary uh, to, you know, for a team to be, you know, be a Stanley Cup contender. Uh, but certainly Darcy Tucker had an impact on all the games he played for the Leafs, certainly in the postseason. Oh, it was, it was great. Like he was, he was everything. I, I wish I saw more Wade Belak in this game. Cause I remember, I remember liking him just cause he was funny and he hit people a lot and he fought. And it's, and I, I bet that there's a reason why he didn't play. Cause he wasn't really that good, but he just like having, think about, think about how far the Leafs have gone from a time when they had Ty Domi, Wade Belak and Darcy Tucker to now. Yeah. To I mean, I was wondering watching like, what's it going to take for Wade Belak to actually get a regular shift? Are we going to have to watch like a meaningless a game, a meaningless game in, you know, November of 2003 in order to actually see him play. I'm going to go through his game logs after this and find the game where he played the most amount of minutes. And that's going to be our next rewatch. Just a, we got to get some Wade in there. A full podcast devoted to Mr. Belak. Uh, yeah, it'll be like November 10th against the St. Louis blues in St. Louis on a Tuesday night. And it'll be like, no, Belak played 13 minutes in this game. So we're going to break it down in, in pornographic detail. I guess all we really have to do is get a game with multiple fights in it because then he'd yeah. be surely involved. I think he was literally, it was of the time where you literally have players that were only on the bench uh, in case shit hit the fan and shit and didn't that was hit the fan it. in this game. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I remember being in the ACC for a Wade Belak goal and I could hear him yelling in surprise and excitement from my seats. There you go. It was hilarious. It was, it was great. I miss that guy every day. Uh, two, one Leafs. Sammy Sallow cuts into the lead, uh, just basically steps into one after a one faceoff. Our boy, Alan McCauley couldn't do his job. Couldn't do his best Alexander Kerfoot impression and win the faceoff. Todd White got it to him and Sallow hammered it home. Yeah, it was just a lot of these goal. A lot of the goals in this game, almost every single one of them, were just like either right off the draw or shots from weird angles. Like it was just there wasn't there wasn't any you know streak down the wing, pick the corner. It was all like just catching the goalies off guard. And that was the same thing on the game tying goal. Basically, Mike Fisher just curled on the sideboards and fired a shot through traffic that Joseph just uh, didn't find a way to react to. There was through a screen. Wasn't a hard shot, but uh, it was just one of those perfect shots that uh, found the back of the net. If we saw this game now, you know how, like, you know, I would be talking if, if the Leafs didn't win this game, um, you'd be, this you'd be unhappy. Been, this would you'd be yeah, unhappy this, with Curtis Joseph. Exactly. I, I'd be asking you if there's a goaltending controversy. Who even was the backup at this point? I believe it was Corey Schwab. I'd be like, I don't know if he was dressed, but he played that year. I'd be like, we got to get some Schwab in here. Like, I don't know yeah. if, 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 no, but like it was, for Cujo played incredible. He stopped 54-56. He was awesome, 964 save percentage. But the two goals that he led in were really weak. They'd be the kind of goals that like 50 people on Twitter right after they would happen, no context. Would be, you got to have that, Freddie. Tom Barrasso played four games for the Leafs that year, but I'm pretty sure it was Schwab that was backing up that night. What? I, I remember seeing a, a goalie dressed and sitting on the bench. I just, again, like I couldn't tell what his face looked like. Uh, we were not soon long after that, we were at uh, the first overtime period. And one thing that stuck out to me was a Harry Neal quote 
uh, to start overtime, he made a joke about how referees view their job in overtime, which is to not call any penalties at all, which is basically him just speaking the truth, but basically yeah. him having a conversation with someone who all but confirmed that this is how referees view this. In overtime, they are supposed to stay out of the way and just let five on five, basically players just skate themselves into oblivion until someone is too tired and makes a mistake and the, the goal finally goes in. Uh, it's the backwards way of looking at things. You, could, you should call it the exact same way because overtime or power plays are exciting, especially in overtime. Uh, probably the highlight of overtime until the, until the goal happened was the little bit of pressure after Zidane Chara uh, got high stick by Darcy Tucker and the Leafs were forced on the penalty kill. That was the one they had to call because you can't just, it's an objective call. He was literally high stick in the face. You have to call it. Uh, so it was, I think the one, I think there was a makeup call later. So they tried to even it up, which is a classic referee maneuver as well. Um, but those were the most exciting parts in overtime when there was a power play uh, until obviously the winner and the reaction to the winner. Um, but it was hilarious how he's basically just a little caution to the fans who are watching this. You're not going to see any power plays because the referees refuse to call penalties in overtime. It's funny. It's exactly what you're talking about, how this broadcast crew just didn't care about, you know, they what told they it said. like it was exactly. They told it exactly how it was. And, and I wish we could have that more because we hide behind this facade now of like, you know, uh, of hockey's this pristine thing they were just like yeah you know the referees just stopped doing their jobs in overtime so just expect that i think mm -hmm. i think we'd be able to accept that more these days if we were just told right from the hop okay so refs they're just not going to call anything in in these overtime periods so just kind of deal with that i think we'd be able to it'd be a lot easier to accept at that point if instead of now where we're like we still have that inkling of like maybe they'll call this one and then we get we lose our minds every time we miss it i think i think we do hear it from I think we, we hear some complaining about, you know, how there, this should have been a call. I think we do hear that a little bit, but it's the clever way he did it. Like it was a joke and just yeah. a side, side conversation where it was like the referee, if you ever feel that urge, the referee told me just, you know, just, I think he said, pull on your pant leg and the, the, the <laughs> sensation will go away or something like that. So it's just a little joke. Like that was what he was so good at injecting a little bit of humor into the game, but it was smart humor. It was something that, you know, it was a real anecdote. It was something he heard and it gave you a sense of what was going to happen, which was these guys were just going to play five and five. And that's mostly what happened until the referees were forced to make that call on Tucker. We uh, just the golden age of broadcasting. Just so in my mind, I pretty much zoned out for two overtimes because yeah. let's face it, a hundred minutes of hockey, uh, when you already know what's going to happen in the end is sort of tough to go through. So I did watch the full game, but nothing really stood out in the first or second overtime to me. Anything stand out to you before we get to uh, the decisive that, moment? Just that exhaustion. Like it was, it was like just a gladiator battle. Like it was just both teams just slogging it out with each other. You could tell like everyone was, was tired. McCabe was like buckled over on the bench, his face as red as, as a beet field. It was just, it, it was remarkable how, how these guys got through it. And as well, like in my mind, just how much, because I, I didn't, I, I decided to only check the box score and like all the stats after, after I saw the game. And I was just shocked by how much Carl Pilash I was seeing in overtime in second overtime and third, it, it, was, it was remarkable. And, you know, he, uh, he, he put his team on his back. That's, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about Carl Pilash in this game. It, it, the guy is, uh, you know, an Ironman. He played until 2018. It's, it's remarkable. It was a long wait, a uh, hundred plus minutes, and we almost missed the moment we were all waiting for, which was the reason why this game was on television or a rewind 
on Sportsnet. Uh, Gary Roberts scoring on his first shot of the game, first recorded shot of the game, at least. That's insane to me. And the, they almost missed it on the broadcast because they were showing the McGilney chance right before. It was actually really entertaining, the start of the third overtime, because there was a lot of chances. McGilney had one of them. We didn't see the draw. It was scrummed. Robert Reichel didn't win it, but he got an assist because Gary Roberts collected the puck and fired it through Patrick Laleem's legs to uh, even the series. And eventually the Leafs would go on uh, to win the series and they had to win this game. And Gary Roberts provided that, uh, that heroic moment for the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Like the fact that it was his first shot of the game is, was insane because he, they just essentially played two full hockey games mm-hmm. and it was the first time. And he's like Roberts, he didn't play as much as I thought he did, but he played 33 minutes in that game. And it took him that long to get, he took, it took him until the, th- the seven, the 30, third minute and 17th second of his 33 minutes and 17 seconds of that game to take a shot on net. And he just, it happened to go in. And it was a weak one too. It was along the ice. Laleem should have had it. And you can tell him the face of Laleem that he should have had it because he mm-hmm. looked like so dejected. And at the time I didn't care what he felt because I was a young fan who wanted to, you know, wanted to, you know, drive out the heart of every Ottawa Senator on the ice. But I felt, I felt bad for the guy watching it now because I'm like this, he's been, putting on a show this whole time he's be, he, he's probably playing the best hockey he's ever played and just one little slip up mistake ends three a three ot slog fest the lasting image for patrick laleen for me is like moments of leaf scoring on him and dejection on written all over down. his he's either looking down between his legs looking up like there's always the 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 enduring patrick laleen highlight is his be, him being scored on by a member of the toronto maple leafs because the toronto maple leafs owned the Battle of Ontario in the early 2000s. And this is another example of the Leafs getting the better of them. They sure did. Do you want to go uh, what age best and what age worst? Let's do it. All right. Start it off. What age best, I guess, would be, uh, I mean, now, Carol Pilash, this guy played until 2018. <laughs> until he was 42. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it probably would be, uh, it would be Mike Fisher or Mary really? Ellison. Or Marion Hosa, because you could, Hosa, you could, yeah. or, you know, Chara, I have a chart. It's gotta be Chara, right? He's still playing at a high level. Yeah. It's gotta be. Ugh. I was going to say like Alex McGillney's playing style probably aged the best. Uh, uh, well, no, I mean, he didn't have, this was his last really good year. I think in the That's NHL. True. No, but I mean so. like his, his playing style. Like, oh, like, his playing style. Yeah. Like, yeah. His, 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 Alex McGillney's like the what he did endured beyond mm-hmm. these years for sure. Uh, yeah. But I think the fact that there was two future Hall of Famers uh, who went on to win Stanley Cups in this game who weren't at the height of their powers yet, uh, I think between Sedano Char and Marion Hosa, those two aged the best. I'm, I'm, I think you can't really sure. go wrong with either of those choices. But aged the worst for me is Curtis Joseph's playing style. Yeah, yeah. Hard to, like, hard to argue with that one either. Look like Johnny Bauer out there. He's just kicking, kicking his legs out, you know, at, at random. Bob Wren. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, sharp decline for Bobby Wren. Uh, Todd White. I think he just wasted away with the Atlanta Thrashers after that. Yeah. Anyone uh, who went to Atlanta at that point. Anyone who went to Atlanta, yeah. Atlanta I guess Pat- Patrick Laleem had a couple more years, but uh, he went to St. Louis and then he didn't do anything. Yeah, he, I mean, he played in the Battle of Ontario for a few more years, I think. They had a few more matchups with each other. He played with the Senators until 04, and then he sort of bounced around a little bit. Uh, but he did not have a good year that followed. 
actually no, he was he was better that year than he was the year before. They went they went three rounds in the playoffs the next year. The Senators did, so I guess you can't really say that he aged the worst. But this was his apex mountain. If we want to yes. uh, go with that again, because these were his. He didn't have a long run, but he had three seasons where he was uh, a force with a really good team in the Ottawa Senators. Was this Gary Roberts' apex mountain? Well, he went on and played a lot more. Like he again, he got pinched out of the out of the Leafs after uh, after the uh, salary cap came in. But then he went and got he went and played with Sidney Crosby, right? Did he play yeah. in another Cup final? He did not have a good year in in because this is two thousand one, two thousand two. This season he was thirty five. He played till he's forty two. Crazy. He was thirty five. Yeah. He, he had forty eight points in sixty nine games. So two thousand seven, eight Pittsburgh Penguins. Did they go to the final? I think so. So he went to the, he didn't play much though, but that was obviously a really good team, and he sort mm-hmm. of helped helped along one of the greatest players in history. Uh, you know get to the, the revolutionized next level player fitness and he revolutionized player fitness and he scores goals a hundred minutes. That should be his tagline. I score goals 104 minutes into games. If you train uh, with me, you'll do the same thing. Just rolls off the tongue. I score goals yeah. 104 minutes. His, his enduring legacy is the, uh, the, the screenshot from a game where he got, where he served a too many men on or too many men on the ice call. And the, the Chiron says too much man, too much man. Fortunately yeah. for Gary Roberts, he doesn't need me to write, captions on his business card he seems to be doing just fine he could have just put too much man on on his business card and everyone would know and yeah i I mean he literally is too much man he is he was too much for the ottawa senators on may 2nd am i getting it right may Uh, 2nd may it was may 4th may 4th what a terrible way to try and close the show on may 4th he was too much man for the ottawa senators may 4th 2002 that is too much man for the ottawa senators uh, and he led the Maple Leafs to a crucial victory and one that meant a lot down the road because uh, they eventually moved on to the conference finals again uh, in what was a successful little little run for the Maple Leafs in their history. It didn't get them to the Stanley Cup final, uh, but those were some enjoyable years. You got to watch some of it before you went to bed. I <laughs> apparently partied in the streets even at that age. I was doing that, not doing it anymore. Certainly not during a pandemic, but mm-hmm. not anymore Good. regardless. Uh, but uh, that was a lot of fun. Another good watch. Hopefully Sportsnet continues to churn out the good ones and we'll uh, continue to look back on memory lane and talk about the Leafs and what may be better years, but what I, I hope they throw in some, you know, some nightmarish Peter Horacek games as well. That'd be oh, fun. That would be, be a Peter Horacek so game. Fun. Yeah, How fun need, would it be to do one of those? We need, either need to figure out a way to get these games on ourselves by ourselves or Sportsnet needs to, you know, mix in some disaster for us so we can really get into the, uh, the lean years for the Maple Leafs. You know what we should do for our next one? We should do the Nashville 9-2 game. I was thinking that. I was thinking should, the 9-2 we game. Find a way to we might that. be able to get our hands on that one. These early games are hard to get. Like the, the archive on NHL.com, surprise, surprise, isn't that uh, robust oh. or user-friendly. Uh, we can get any game from this year, but I don't think that's as fun as looking back. Uh, but I'd certainly love to dig into a, a disaster year. I think I, I, I'm not going to make any hard promises on this podcast, but I think the Nashville 9-2 would be a lot of fun. Uh, we, should, uh, we should extend it out there and get a couple more ideas uh, mm-hmm. because it looks like we're going to be doing this for a little while as, yeah. uh, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't look like we're anywhere close to the NHL returning uh, or any live sports really being available because as much as we've got some positive news in the last few days with, uh, you know, maybe cases not, you know, multiplying as they were mm-hmm. earlier – uh, and people are doing the right things. Uh, it's going to take a little while for us to get through this all together because 
uh, it's just not going to go away at the snap of the fingers. So we'll figure out ways to be entertaining, uh, and we'll we'll pick some other new games and 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 rewatch them and talk about them. And you know, from Carl P. Lash and who was our guy in the first game? Uh oh, uh, Sugalbov, Alexander Sugalbov. Alexander Sugalbov, Carl P. Lash. We need the next one. Who's the next yeah. one? Hopefully, we'll find out on the next podcast. I think we will. Uh, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.